Launched it for me. So, um, so tell me, I I, I want to know more about you as a dude. So, where are you from in Scotland? <laughs> uh, I was born and grew up in Glasgow. Okay, uh, best city in Scotland and on the west coast of Scotland. And uh, I guess I stayed there until I was about twenty one, twenty two. And then I left home to go to college. I left school and uh, on the fr- on a Friday and started working in a bank on the following Monday. Uh, and I did that for about four years. It, it was pretty crap. I didn't really enjoy that very much. And then I got a job as a debt collector, which I did for about a year. And that was terrible, but I learned a lot. And then I decided that there was more to life than just doing the job that came up. And you could actually decide what you wanted to do. And I went to the east coast of Scotland, went to college. You couldn't do it. By that time, I was into music. There was nothing you could do related to music unless you, you had done music formally okay. at school and could read music then. But doing PR and communications was, you know, at least that was something that I felt I could, pro- I didn't know much about it, but I figured I could probably apply that to music. And uh, I guess I did. Yeah. <laughs> So, do you come from a musical family? No, not really. Well, my, my my grandfather on my dad's side was a violinist and a a, sale, a music salesman, and he they came from Italy to Scotland in nineteen eight. No, actually, it was before that, just the turn of the twentieth century, because my dad was born in nineteen eight in Glasgow, and he he played a bit of guitar. Uh, but he was a kind of three-chord wonder, and as a kid, I just thought, nah, that's crap, you're, you're useless. Of course, when I realised he was actually quite good, it was too late. <laughs> sure. But, um, yeah, he, so he played a bit of guitar, and he kind of, I, I guess he kind of encouraged me in, in, in some way, and uh, was always, in, although he was quite an older guy for a dad, he was 56 when I was born. Okay. So, uh you know, but it was him that would, would always be taking an interest in in me learning to play the guitar and what I was listening to, whereas my mum would just be telling us to be quiet and shut the door. And <laughs> she was a, a lot younger, but a lot more uptight. Sure, <laughs> I so inherited you, some of that as well. <laughs> yeah. So do you have brothers and sisters? No, no, only child. Oh wow. Okay. All right. So uh, it was kind of lonesome sometimes. <laughs> yeah, but still, you had you know. If you have your father's attention and he's encouraging you, that that's magic sometimes. Absolutely, yeah. Because I mean, that's if I hadn't been for that, I doubt I would have done it. You know, might have still been working in a bank. Right. So, so you picked up a guitar when? How old? Well, I started when I was about eighteen or nineteen, but that wasn't really the. I mean, as 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 a, as a kid, probably seven or eight years old, maybe a little bit younger even. It must have been younger actually because it was decimalization when the UK money system changed to be decimal was I think 1969 or 1970 so I must have only been four or five when I did this but I got my dad's nylon strung classical guitar covered it with tinfoil to make it look like an electric guitar and attacked it with a big old pre-decimalization penny a a UK penny was like, like quite a big thing it was probably like two three centimeters across and, and bronze or something, I don't know. <laughs> and I, I think I shredded all the strings with two hits 
So probably not a lot's changed, really. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, but then, you know, did you just sort of tool around with it until you got older? Not really. I, think I, I seem to remember at primary school there was a chance of group guitar lessons. Sure. I think there was maybe six or seven of us sitting in a circle trying to play She'll Be Coming Round the Mountain. Of course. And, uh, you know, I went twice and then thought, this is, this is, this is terrible. Yeah. I mean, I didn't even know what music I liked at that point, but I knew I didn't like that crap, you know? Right. <laughs> Although now if I had Pete Seeger or somebody to do it, I'd like it. Right, yeah. <laughs> but, um, so I, I actually didn't really start playing guitar until I was 18 or 19. We used to get, when I was working in the bank, we used to get a Christmas bonus and we also got an extra day's holiday in December as a Christmas shopping day. So uh, I took my Christmas bonus. Of course, I didn't buy Christmas presents for anyone. I went to Bigger's Music Shop in Sucky Hall Street in Glasgow and bought a £49 Harmony Sovereign guitar, <laughs> which my parents said, well, that'll be under the bed in a week. <laughs> of course, of course, that guaranteed that it wouldn't be under the bed right, in a week. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so then did, did, you have, did you start off with a guitar teacher? No, I can't remember. I, I think after about... A, a week or two of messing around on my own and realizing that it had to be tuned and and stuff like that. Uh, of course, there was no internet, let alone right. YouTube or even video or anything at that point. But I've I found a a, a book, the, the classic thing. You know, I show you a couple of chords, picture chords, and then a song. That of course I didn't know any of the songs that were in the book, so I just invented my own. Right. <laughs> and basically, just taught me so none of my pals played. Which, looking back, is, is you know a lot of the the seminal bands to come out of Glasgow in the probably in the in the seventies and eighties were bands like the Vaselines and Teenage Fan Club. Uh, I'm trying to think who else. Uh, the Pastels. A lot of these bands they all came from the same area and they were all friends together and they all started to learn to play instruments together and form bands. You know, as kids. But I. Sadly, didn't have any of that. <laughs> so I was pretty much left to my own devices. But within a couple of weeks of having the guitar, I was going out into Glasgow city centre, going busking and playing the first two lines of Space Oddity because I could play C and E minor. And I just repeated these two lines for maybe an hour and a half <laughs> because I figured nobody's going to stop long enough to listen. Right. So I could, you know, as long as I just play ground control to major tom, C, E minor, ground control to C, C minor, C, E minor, and I made enough money to go into the pub and buy a couple of pints of beer and a cheeseburger out the microwave. <laughs> oh my but, God. That's amazing. But... <laughs> so that was my baptism of fire. And then I did a lot of busking subsequently when I, when I went to college because I spent all my grant in a PA system, and uh, by that time I had a you know clutch of you know Bob Dylan and Neil Young and some fifties rock and roll and whatever that I could hammer out in the street and chase people up the street and I guess learn. <laughs> yeah. So then, like when when you were young, was there music that sort of like music you remember being around the house? Uh, my mum and dad listened to kind of fairly middle of the road stuff, you know, it'd be like Dean Martin sure. or, you know, stuff like that, which again, yeah, I can appreciate that stuff now, but as a kid, you know, it was just, and also probably because it was my parents. Right. Um, and, and, you know, that generation gap isn't there anymore. Uh, kids and whole families can enjoy the same music, but it wasn't like that in the 60s. <laughs> no, no. I was, I always tell people that the, the first concert 
I ever went to was Frank Sinatra. And I went when I was six years old. Right. Wow. And, and so, and it so the thing is like, I, I remember like we had an eight track and it, we had a bunch of, cause my dad owned a bar. And so we brought the stereo home from the bar when they closed. And, uh, and so we'd listen to, you know, Frank Sinatra eight tracks and my buddies were like, this, this is terrible. I don't know why you like this. You know, we were, <laughs> we were punk rock kids and stuff. And I'm like, no, this is really cool. And the thing is, yeah, now I've grown into it. And, and my favorite live record of all time is Sinatra's live record from Madison Square Garden. And I think that, you know, whatever they did, you know, taking me to see him in person changed, I think, changed how I saw my parents' music. Because, You're just like in a subliminal right. thing, isn't it? Yeah, because like, you know, like you, they, they listen to a lot of Dean Martin and a lot of Louis Prima and a lot of those dudes. And it was like, yeah, okay, I, I get it. But it's just, you know, at the same time, my mom hated Willie Nelson with such a passion that I didn't, I to this day, I don't understand. But yeah, so yeah. Well, you know, the first, I think the first thing I probably really remember, and it's kind of almost more in hindsight, was being about seven years old and hearing what was, uh, I didn't know from the uh I think it was on the Fools in Prison album, Cassius Fools in Prison sure. album, um, 25 Minutes to Go. Okay. And it was at a friend's house, and I just remember this this line, I had some beans for my last meal, and as a kid, that kind of... But I, it was the sound of it, and it was a long time. It was another 20 years before I would come across that song again, and then discover uh, another 10 years before I discovered Pearl Jam's version, which is... Right. I actually prefer <laughs> now to... to to say that you prefer a cover over the original is, right. is pretty uh, scary thing to say, but the Pearl Jam version is awesome. Yeah. And um, but I think what that did was I, I kind of, as I from, certainly as a, as a kid, a lot of the stuff that I gravitated towards, a, a lot of, or in, certainly any of the pop music in the UK, which at that time was I suppose glam rock, but I went more towards the towards a guy called Alvin Stardust, who was a bit a bit of like kind of Gene Vincent kind of character. Okay. It was much more 50s rock and roll sounding. And I realised that it was, you know, looking back, it, it's that whole sun sound slap back. And, I mean, it doesn't, you wouldn't know it from any of my, my own music, but, you know, I, that is that is what I love, that 50s rock and roll kind of rockabilly sound. Yeah. And I think that kind of, that 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 was at the core of a, um, and shaped a lot of my likes. Although I went through a heavy metal period, and then subsequently Bowie and Lou Reed, and then when I found acoustic guitar, got into Dylan and Neil Young because you could kind of identify with that. But um, you know, I've I've never I've I've never changed my mind over any of the music that I uh, that I've liked. Uh, you know, I still have all my albums from when I was like seven or eight years old, right right through. Sure. Yeah, it's you know it's funny because I'll I'll just a story about our mutual friend, Tom. Um, so when I met Tom, Tom was, he was in some sort of weird industrial band, you know, kind of electronic and, you know, he had his head shaved and the whole thing. No but, way. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I was like, okay, you know, and I was working at a blues bar as the, the manager and the booker. And I'm like, you should come down and, you know, see some of these guitar players. And uh, so he started coming down and hanging out. And then one summer, and, and I think he'll tell the story the same way, he and I both got a copy of 
uh, the documentary about Neil Young and Crazy Horse. Right. And we watched it, not even exaggerating, we each watched it every day all summer long. And by the end of it, he was working at a guitar shop trying to find a black Les Paul, you know, because he had gone through like he had gone through playing a telly, then an SG and even a Strat for a minute. And uh, but then we we spent that. I always think when I talk about him, that his musical journey really started with that documentary, because there's like a, (laughs) a long section with Neil's guitar tech talking about you know, the guitar and all that sort of stuff. And it's, and then after that, it was like, Tom got that black, uh, he got that black Les Paul and he didn't look back until he got that Gretsch of his. And then it was, you know, obviously now it's all over, but yeah, it was that, that Les Paul black beauty, you know, and maybe he got a gold top as well in there, but yeah, it was, it was really funny to sort of think about, or it's really funny to think about, you know, how, his sound changed because he was in a guy, he was in a couple of just God awful blues bands that were just terrible, you know? And I, <laughs> and I booked him cause he was my friend and I wanted him to go. And the other thing Tom did is Tom, Tom paid his dues and he, and he played sideman for a bunch of, you know, established Midwestern blues, older guys. And I, and I really appreciated that. So nice. Yeah. That's so, good. so then once you got the guitar and you started busking, was was what was the first band of yours when i went to to college um there were a couple of other people that i bumped into that played guitar a bit and it was easiest to kind of if you were going to play together and jam blues was i suppose the 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 way people went yeah Uh, but of course i couldn't play a 12 bar blues i'd know i just changed chords when i wanted to i had no idea you were meant to I mean, I still change the fucking chords when I want to. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the uh, so, but I, I did uh, towards the end of the college, about ninety, no, about nineteen eighty-seven. I uh, started a band with a few folk from there, and it was called Summerfield Blues. And I was the guitar player was a guy who sang, played bass, and we, we got a drummer and stuff. And it was most a, a lot of covers at that point, and then. We started putting some of our own stuff together. It was kind of barroom blues sort of sure. stuff. But I played, um, I, I kind of decided to try, but I, I, I really liked uh, early Fleetwood Mac and the Peter Green, Danny Kerwin right. days. So that influenced a lot of the stuff that, that we did and wrote w- with that band. And so I started experimenting with open tunings and bottleneck and I immediately was at home with it. Because I was never ever much good at playing widdly widdly guitar solos. In fact, I've never particularly much liked them particularly. Maybe it's just because I can't do it. <laughs> I don't mind listening to other people doing it, but right. it's never been for me. So the slide just felt much more natural and bottleneck stuff. But the, the finger picking and, and resonator stuff didn't come till quite a lot later, until that band was coming to an end in the mid nineties. Um, I was doing some a lot of writing for music magazines, and I'd been asked to go and um, do a kind of, it wasn't really a gig review, it was more like a gig review and interview kind of feature uh, with a guy who was playing in Glasgow and uh, from here, from from Iowa, called Catfish Keith. And I just remember thinking, God, that's a really stupid name. This guy's going to be a total diddy. And, uh, but when I turned up, he and his wife couldn't have been nicer. And that was the first time I'd ever seen a, a steel guitar. 
in, in the flesh. You had seen pictures of them in books and stuff. Because at this point, they're still not really internet still pretty. Right. So, you, you know, you're limited to what you're exposed to. And I, I remember we, we chatted. He, we had a, a great interview. I learned a lot from him. That we became far friends. And subsequently, for about the next um, 20 years, I tour managed him in the UK and did all these press and stuff. And we're still friends. And, you know, uh, I often miss him when he's in the UK because I'm often over here. But uh, he's sorted gigs since then in Iowa for me and stuff. But when he hit the stage that night, I'd never heard one guy make a noise like that. Sure. It was like a whole band. And I just thought, that's... Because I'd tried to kind of figure out the recordings. I had some tapes that had been copied about 20 times of people like, you know, uh, Bucket White and Robert Johnson, Blind sure. Willie, all these stuff. But you couldn't... Re- it was just a gungy sound. You couldn't really make out what was going on, let alone figure out how to play it. So that was that that kind of opened my eyes, and that was I, I, I suddenly saw this is kind of how you could approach it. I've never really been any good at learning things or learning other people's stuff, but what it did do was give me a, an insight into the right. This is kind of what's involved, and I was just able to go away and do my own thing. Yeah. So then, when when was the first steel guitar in your life? I, well, the the, the folk at Na- National, um, McGregor, Gaines and Don Young restarted the National Company, I think, in the 80s, uh, because National had, you know, gone into mothballs, I think, sure. in the 60s, 50s or 60s. So these guys, you know, rekindled the flame, started building all the original blueprints and everything. And so they became kind of available. And there was a distributor in the UK and it, it took a good few months, and I got a polychrome tricone in probably about 95, 95 or 96. And that was great. Uh, about two years later, I got hold of a stylo. Okay. And on one of Catfish Keith's visits, he noticed that the tricone was really, really rusty. By this time, I'd started a new band called Radio Tones, which was basically what I do now, but with a bass player and a harmonica player. Okay. And uh, Catfish saw that the, the tricone was really, really rusty. Not just kind of cosmetic. It was almost like bits of it. You could have an old car you could have put your fingers through. Okay. And, and he couldn't believe it. So he got in touch with, with National. They said, send the guitar back. They put a brass body on it, put a pickup in it, sent me a pickup for the other, for the stylo, and hence began the relationship with National Resophonic. And I've been a national artist ever since. <laughs> wow. So how long between getting one, did you, how long did it take before you brought it on stage? Uh, probably about a year. Okay. When I got the guitar, uh, some pals were playing a show and had knew I had this guitar and had been kind of working away and putting together some stuff or learning some stuff. And they persuaded me to do a wee opening slot for them. And I went and did it. And at that opening slot, the harmonica player in that band came and said, have you ever thought about playing with a harmonica player? And I said, not really, but come round. And um, within about a month, we were figuring stuff out. It was difficult to get gigs as a duo, so... I managed to find a bass player, and Radio Tones was was born really, really quickly. And wow. I just started writing songs, and you know the first album was out I think a year later. <laughs> wow! So are there is it is it like America? Are there is there like sort of a a network of of dive bars you can play in? 
do you know there's not such a great scene? I mean, there's lots of great music in Scotland, right? And there's lots of venues in Glasgow, but it is quite. There's no. I mean, I, I've moved away from really what we, we would probably term blues. I think I've moved away from yeah. it. Uh, because in the UK, kind of blues is it's like kind of kiss of death. People think of you know guys sitting in a corner watching their fingers wiggly wiggly right. and guitar, endless guitar solos and no creativity and um, you know so it, it get blues as a genre as a as a bit of bad press. Um, although people are starting to come out the other end of it now, um, but the, you know, the kind of stuff I do and and and, and Tom and Mitch do with Twenty Watt Tombstone, and I do a lot of stuff with people from here like Scott Byram, Red Peyton's Big Damn Band, Bob Log, which is probably what, what would you call it? alternative blues, left to centre blues based Americana that got screwed up along the way. I right. don't really know yeah. what you would call it, but there, there isn't really a joined up scene in the UK for that, um, and. No, there is in Europe, and I think there is here, and there's a good network. But when people come to the UK, it's really, really hard to help them and get gigs. So usually, what we try and do is, if I've got shows coming up, I say, right, I've got a show coming up. You want to come and play the show with me? And that's how we have to do it. But you know, I only play in Glasgow maybe twice a year. So if if two or three friends are coming to Scotland, they, I can only give one of them a gig. And right. Then, you know, we've got to try and find something for. For other folk, because you know we get so much help from people here in the states. Tom, particularly, I mean, Tom's. I think I've said this before in our conversations that, that Tom, the two people that were instrumental in me coming over here for the first time in 2013, one was Tom, who really just didn't let me say no. Right. And another guy, uh, Chris, up at the old Bayport Barbecue, Chris Johnson, who gave me a, an anchor gig and opened the door to another couple of places. So between Tom and Chris, that was, you know, that, that was, that was the, the in, and we've had so much help subsequently to left lane cruiser. These guys are still helping with this to Red Payton's big damn band. There's so many people that, that kind of still help us out over here. Um, and it's, you know, we have to try and return the favour in other ways because it's so difficult to try and return the favour when they come to the UK. Right. Oh, yeah. No, it was... I Yeah, I, re, I don't really remember when or how Tom found you, but... He, Back in the old MySpace days. Oh, okay. All right. Is that how that worked? All right. It was probably a good five years. It was probably about 2005, even. 2005, okay. I would think. Um, and that was where we kind of touched connected first of all and uh yeah so it took a while but he got me here <laughs> yeah because it was one of those things where i'm like who the who is this tom why why do i need to care and and i had i had left working at the club to get a sort of a grown-up job but tom had gotten a gig you know booking a club and i'm like all right well you know book your buddies that's you know like that's how that'll work and stuff but yeah i uh he was like he was passionate about you and Bob and Left Lane came later, but uh, he and I both scout, found Scott Byram around the same time, and uh, and for me it was it all came out of uh, a friend of mine who owns a record label called Fat Possum, and so like the Junior Kimbrough and R.L. Burnside and those guys and the Black Keys, those yep. guys all came out of Fat Possum, and I'm like okay so. I really, I I have a, a definite thing for really big fuzzy guitars, you know, and uh, 
And I always we we always talk about how it sounds the best right before the amp blows up. You know? <laughs> yes, yes. And so it's like, all right, you know, and so Tom, I would always be like, Tom, make it fuzzier, make it fuzz. I don't know. You know, I'm not a guitar player. I'm like, yeah, make it more, you know, noisy and jangly and stuff. And he, you know, he'd be like, well, that doesn't fit dummy. Stop talking. And I'm like, okay. So, but yeah, then, then it was just a bunch of you guys who were just right in my wheelhouse. And I'm like, oh, this is so perfect. You know, like, like that, there is that, that sort of genre of music where I'm like, yep, this is the guitar tone I like. And there's a whole genre of dudes who do this now, you know, like I remember when Left Lane came and played a really conservative blues festival here in Wausau. And I'm like, people are going to hate this. They are really, really, (laughs) and and they did. They hate that. But it was Tom who did it. And he, you know, he convinced this blue society to get, to let these guys play and i'm like yeah tom i used to be the president of that blue society and they're gonna hate this because they hated alvin youngblood hart when i booked him you know i'm like well he's fiddly uh... right exactly just anything progressive at all was i'm like well if they hated alvin they're really gonna hate left lane you know and so and they did they really hated him the people loved him just fine because you know you put left lane on stage and they'll get over you know yeah but, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's cool. So then, you know, how how has it been like as a as essentially a one man show? Are you a one man show in Europe as well? Yes, all apart from I mean, there was one album that came out in a Finnish record label where I was joined with a by a bass player and a snare drum player. But apart from that, yeah, I've since the since I kind of I like to say that I never that radio tones never broke up. It's it's a wang there right. in the background could be reactivated at any time, but they're, they're, it's probably not hugely realistic because of the amount of rehearsing that would be needed. Uh, I always feel that you know it's not like we can just have a one rehearsal go out and play a big gig because if people are paying quite a big ticket price, you can't have a jam on the stage. It needs to be. It needs to, you need to nail it. Right. Um, but so yeah, pretty much a, a, a one man show, I guess. And, um, you know, Margaret and I are a little cottage industry. Right. We do everything ourselves. We book stuff ourselves. We do the press. We kind of split things. She, uh, Margaret is, keeps me out of trouble, sometimes gets me into it. Um, she does most of the bookings, although up until now I've done the USA stuff for some reason. But she does that and a little tour management stuff and works with sound engineers in Europe and uh, and stuff. And I take and tend to deal with the, the PR and promo, photography, design, website stuff, social media. All the, va- all the vanity stuff, right? You, yeah, she does, yeah. She does the work and you look good. The real work. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Yeah, the nail net. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but we, you know, we, we don't, I mean, I've licensed albums out to other labels and stuff in Europe, but by and large, it's 100% independent and little cottage industry. That's cool. Good for you. So yeah, it's it's fun because you know I've I have long lasting friendships in music, and it's always it's always cool to see my friends succeed. You know, like I'm I'm good friends with a with a guy from Texas named Jesse Dayton. Um, oh yeah, yeah. And so Jesse and I are good friends, and like you, his wife is the boss. Like <laughs> she is far more successful than Jesse will ever be playing a guitar, and uh, and so. Like she works hard to get him into his music on soundtracks, and that's yep. like that's a. Th- 
I had no idea that that was a thing. And then he did he did a soundtrack for Rob's a Rob Zombie horror movie, and he he likes to tell the joke on stage that you know Rob asked him to do it as another band with a, a phony band, so they created a band called Banjo and Sullivan. <laughs> and, and it's the it's his most successful record by ten times, and and his name's not anywhere on it, and uh, so he, he always complains that nobody knows he did the record, and Rob Zombie always says, well, as long as the mailman knows you did it when he brings you the checks, absolutely, you know, yeah. right, and so that's you know that's a lot of fun and stuff like that, but yeah, it is, it's cool to see, you know, like I I really think we're at a point musically now where hard work and the willingness to get in the car is the, it can be the difference between, you know, being a local celebrity and a, and a, and a touring musician. It's absolutely crucial, man. And the, the live show, I think, you know, you have thought for a long time is the absolute catalyst for everything. Yeah. Without it, we wouldn't be speaking just now. No. Um, so for getting any kind of exposure, taking part in interviews, any media stuff, sales, even, even if you don't necessarily sell a lot of gigs, it's subsequent sales online are all, in my mind, you know, we, we see, see, see spikes in sales long after tours that have come about from playing the gigs. Yeah. You know, um, so it's really, really important. Yeah, I get I get such a kick out of, uh, there's, there's a story that Tom and I got to meet uh, Joe Bonamassa and uh, the guitar hero, jackass sorry um but uh yeah i'm with you (laughs) yeah so we you know but it was one of those things where he came to play at our blues festival and then played at my club at the jam afterwards and then invited us to come to his show the next day and he had a tour bus which i thought was amazingly ostentatious or just you know whatever just a big pose but we were sitting on the bus with him and he was talking to tom and he said to tom that when he was 17 years old, he decided he didn't want to be the biggest guitar player in Rochester. He wanted to be the biggest guitar player in the world. <laughs> and the thing is, is as much as I can be critical of him because he's a big dickhead, but I can also appreciate the fact that he built a career. You know, absolutely. You can't deny his 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 talent and success, right. whether we like it personally right. or not. Yeah. You know, and it, I wouldn't choose to listen to a lot of that stuff. I've tried to like a lot of it, and it just doesn't do anything for me. No. But I absolutely admire him as an artist, as a business person, um, and for everything that he's achieved. Yeah, I get a kick you know, out so, of Yeah, Tom and I, or I call it math rock, you know, because it's really, it's soulless, you know, just. Yeah, it's great. a little you, bit formulaic, isn't it? Yeah, you just played 700 notes. All right, you know. But yeah, yeah. He he got up to play with uh, Buddy Guy at Legends one night, and uh, and I was there because it was for Crossroads Weekend, and uh, Joe got up and played with Buddy because everybody got to sort of get up and play with him, and uh, Joe you know did what he does and he played nine hundred and fifty notes or whatever it was, and when he was done, Buddy just flipped his guitar over and rubbed the strings on his overalls, and everybody just lost their minds. You know, yes, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's the difference between somebody who has it and somebody who has to work for it. So, yeah, yeah, oh man, yeah, so cool, man. This has been awesome to talk to you. So, when are you going to be in Wassa now? Friday? Uh, on Friday night, yeah, okay. Pollock Inn. Nice. And the Folklore Shroud is opening the show. 
Oh, wow. Uh, now, the guy, Folklore Shroud guy, did it with his son last year. And they were kind of cool. Um, so this time he's doing it by himself, I think. He's doing a solo thing. That's cool. Where do you go? Where are you going to go after? And then on Saturday, I'm at uh, McAuliffe's in Racine. Okay. And then Sunday is the Pecatonica Tap House in Warren, Illinois. And then I can't remember. Okay. That's great. <laughs> All right, man. So uh, if people want to find more out about you on the internet, do you got a website? Sure. It's davearcari.com. So it's D-A-V-E-A-R-C-A-R-I.com. Cool. This place is fantastic. It's like Gone with the Wind on Mescaline. Listen to me. They walk imaginary pets here, Garland, on a fucking leash, all right? And they're all heavily armed and drunk. New York is boring. 